and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Kaylin McPherson. And I'm Mark Dunlap. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a recent New York State hearing on problems with the rollout of adult marijuana. Then our Peace Bucket covers the rally for a ceasefire in the Troy Riverfront Park on Monday, October 30th. Later on, Andrea Cunliffe files another report from the recent forum with Troy City Council candidates. We then have a live interview with Tazi, an artist who's performing at R&B Upcut event. And we finish with the segment, Exploring the Challenges Faced by Adjunct College Faculty in Upstate New York. But first, headlines. A criminal complaint, uh, a criminal complaint claims that a 73-year-old woman being cared for at the ARC Lexington Supervised Living Facility in Glarsville suffocated to death from a seatbelt used to strap her into a wheelchair because caregivers failed to follow work rules to workers then allegedly falsified records to cover up their misdeeds. The Time Union reports that a Union College lecture for students on the historical context of the Israeli Hamas war has generated significant backlash, including a petition calling for it to be canceled. The petition labels the college lecture, sponsored by a student Muslim group, as a Hamas terrorist support rally, a reaction that has startled the retired Jewish political science professor holding a talk, which he said is similar to what he taught at Union College for two decades. The city of Troy has finished a two-year free food composting pilot program that resulted in 100,085 pounds of food scraps diverted by about 250 households. The city has submitted two grants applications to continue the program. A lawsuit filed by a group of parents at LaSalle Institute High School senior football players failed to overturn a ruling that banned them from the Section 2 playoffs. The school had violated rest rules for their junior varsity football team. The league responded that LaSalle had repeatedly violated various athletic rules. Registration is now open for the annual Troy Turkey Trot, the nation's 12th and the world's 64th oldest road race. The race, which started in 1916, started with a 10K. Will start with a 10K race at 8 a.m. on Thanksgiving Day, and hopefully Hudson Mohawk Magazine will be there to cover it. But the Times Union also reports that several offshore wind developers are reporting big losses on New York project. Uh, Danish firm Orsted, which is building a New York offshore wind farm just canceled this New Jersey wind project and wrote off its $4 billion investment. Other projects that are wavering uh, include those that are tied to the ports of Albany and Queeman. That's it for headlines. For our first segment, 
we hear from farmers and marijuana entrepreneurs at this week's state sent hearing on various problems with the rollout on adult marijuana sales in New York. On Monday, October 30th, several New York State Senate committees held an eight-hour-long hearing to get feedback on problems with the slow rollout of the adult recreational cannabis market, which has produced about one-tenth of the revenue expected, creating major financial problems for small operators. Many senators raised concern about the lax enforcement in cracking down on unlicensed pot stores, especially in New York City and large urban areas. Farmers, growers, and various marijuana business concerns discussed their issues with the extremely slow rollout with only about 30 legal adult stores approved so far uh, and the negative impact on many farmers and businesses. They also highlighted problems with the marijuana potency tax far higher than on other businesses and which Witnesses said promote the use of unlicensed marijuana sellers. Last month, the state opened licensing to big businesses from outside the state, as well as existing medical marijuana companies. That change sparked an outcry from social equity applicants. Witnesses also complained about the never-ending red tape, often new. We hear from four individuals on a very long hearing. Uh, Alan Gandelman, president of the Cannabis Association of New York. Renee St. Jacks of the New York State Farm Bureau. Miranda Bromley of Hudson Valley Herbals. And Joseph Calderon of the Cannabis Farm Association. As I sit here today, I wear many hats in New York cannabis. I'm an organic vegetable farmer, an AUCC cultivator, a processor. I am a member of the state's Cannabis Advisory Board, uh, and I'm also the founder and the current board president of the Cannabis Association of New York. We need to adjust the cannabis potency tax. We need to fix our marketing and advertising regulations and laws uh, and make them friendlier so that smaller businesses uh, can market and advertising while allowing positive consumer education. And we also need to address license size and vertical allowances for some of the largest operators in the state. In terms of uh, tax, one thing you didn't hear today is that at the current potency tax rate for flour, that tax equals to about a million dollars per acre that a farmer grows, and each farmer is allowed to grow up to one acre. Um, that is more money in tax than the farm actually uh, sells uh, in cannabis. In terms of marketing, there's a lot of restrictions on businesses to that they can't educate consumers about their products. And so customers are really just going online and shopping for uh, potency and price. And so that is very contrary to the goals of the MRTA, and it's very contrary to all of the public health things that we've been talking about. The marketing regulations the way they are, they're really preventing dispensaries from marketing and advertising in their own neighborhoods. So especially the ones that are surrounded by illicit shops, uh, they cannot get to their customers. And we have to look at how we allocate canopy. Um, there's enough current supply for years to come. And so at the same time, we're allowing a small group of large companies to enter the market with 10 times the canopy that the next 
uh, size license has available to them. So this is just going to create more of a supply problem. We must continue to find ways to provide support and relief to all the small farms and the businesses who took the risk over the last 18 months and struggle every day. Uh, the state needs to create a fund for cultivators and for card dispensaries to continue and help them operate. And we need to pass the Cannabis as an Agricultural Crop uh, Bill. And I think you know, a lot of these solutions uh, can be done, and they can be done pretty quickly. I'm Renee St. Jacques, I'm with New York Farm Bureau, and we represent farmers across New York, but also the farmers who are growing adult use cannabis or interested in growing adult use cannabis and entering this market. I'll just bring up a few things that hopefully the Senate can do to help us out here in the next session and solve some of these issues. Alan mentioned the potency tax issue, Senate Bill 4831, Senator Cooney, thank you for sponsoring that. That bill would solve that issue, New York Farm Bureau supports that bill, it would implement a more reasonable tax collection method. I'll also mention the cannabis is an agricultural crop. We, it needs to be defined as that, and right now there's a lot of gray area. And when it comes to agricultural assessment, farmers already have to meet certain criteria to receive that assessment. Growing cannabis should not be an issue. It should not be a barrier to them receiving that, that benefit. And as we've heard with all the issues of financial issues that farmers are facing trying to get into this market and make it work and, and have a viable business, this agricultural assessment is just one way that we can help solve that. So another one, the, can, the exemption for cannabis when it comes to sales and use tax. A lot of the farm operations across the state rely on a, a sales tax and use tax exemption for certain goods and for certain services. Adding cannabis to that, and that's a Another bill, Senator Cooney, you're sponsoring, so thank you so much. And lastly, Alan also mentioned the, the concern over the vertical integration of the registered organizations. New York Farm Bureau shares that concern and how we're going to make sure that farmers are not pushed out of this market as what's happened in other states where the, these large organizations, these large businesses come in and, and take it over. So, My name is Miranda Bromberg, and I'm here to speak on behalf of my farm, Hudson Valley Herbals located in Ellenville, New York. We are a woman-owned and operated business and a C applicant. Today, I speak for fellow C applicants who are new to the market, but who anticipated applying in this current window for cultivation licenses. For years, we planned and waited for the application window, and last month, were shocked when additional guidance from the board was released on September 29th. This licensing application FAQ contained critical guidance which informed us for the first time that mixed light, outdoor, or combination license types would be disallowed in the October 4th application window except for micro-businesses. This unexpected information contradicted what was communicated to us by the office throughout this arduous process. I resigned from my prior career in 2021 to focus full-time on this business and invested significant personal capital into it. These past few years, we have all patiently waited out lawsuits, attended virtual board meetings, applied for educational initiatives, critically read every control board and OCM publication, sent in public comments, and have been writing, researching, and collaborating with industry counterparts to create a winning business plan. Until September 29th, the guidance provided by the OCM stated that applications would be scored on a number of factors, including social equity, community involvement, environmental and energy plan, economics of the applicant's municipality, and other factors. It also seemed to allow applicants to apply for the full range of cultivation and tier type. Like many, we spent over a year building our business plan and application materials, as well as conceptualizing our physical site, relying on the OCM's guidance. The current portal, however, provides no option to upload additional materials to bolster our application, so these details won't be seen by the board. 
We are ready to continue investing significant capital and energy into our beloved town. We want to hire employees, purchase our property, reassure investors, and budget our business, all of which is difficult to do without a reliable process and a realistic timeline from the state. I counted on the head start the OCM promised C applicants, just like me. However, these changes make that reality seem less likely. The farm site we have optioned in our historically agricultural community sits just down the road from the future site of Cresco Labs New York mega facility. We have done everything right by the standards set in the legislation and regulations, and even so, Cresco will be able to operate and establish itself before we will. We were told sustainability, community impact, and social equity would be a focus of the state, and yet a fully indoor, multi-state corporate operator will be able to operate far in advance of us. How is this in line with the stated values of the control board and OCM? While we appreciate the efforts put into the newest guidance, the degree of changes required significantly more time for applicants to adjust than was afforded. Like thousands of others, we are frustrated with how long it has taken to roll out the legal market for cultivators, processors, dispensaries, and consumers. We want the process expedited. I hear the struggle and frustrations of the conditional license holders, and I am glad the state has taken action to support those farmers. But there are many current and would-be farmers, especially women, who never got the chance to grow hemp and who are being left behind now. Those in our position have been told once again to wait and see. There are many hardworking and experienced applicants who have not had the opportunity to present their plans to the board. I'm Joseph Calderon, Vice President and Co-Founder of Cannabis Farmers Alliance and uh, CEO of Grateful Valley Farm, AUCC number 34, and Farm Bureau member. Thank you for recognizing and acknowledging the CFA as the voice of over a third of the all AUCCs. We have submitted evidence and exhibits, including personal testimonies depicting the heartbreaking state of our members. On behalf of the CFA, I am here today with a plea for your immediate intervention to rescue our distressed farmers address the needs of our growers, particularly with their livelihoods and their lives at stake. Also, maybe revisiting the uh, original Cannabis Rescue Act. We thought there were some pretty good ideas in that as well. New York promised to put independent businesses at the heart of the legal cannabis industry. Now MSLs are rolling out millions of square feet of indoor growing capacity while small independent farms are being crushed by onerous regulations and a failed retail rollout. And that promoted social and economic equity, which is, uh, which is actually kind of impressive. It, um, with the resilience of uh, 36,000 illegal businesses, the consequence of the current program is a, is a parallel market eroding the ability for small legal operators to survive. This was Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So New York is neither by far the first state to legalize use of marijuana, nor is it by far the first state to impose or try to emphasize some social equity in the mar in the rollout of the adult marijuana market. So why New York State is having such tremendous problems, hopefully this hearing may shine a little spotlight on it. For our Peace Bucket, which comes from my co-host, Mark Dunley, produce a segment on the Monday, October 30th for the rally for a ceasefire in Troy Riverfront Park. Around 200 people gathered in Riverfront Park in downtown Troy on Monday, October 30th, to call for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and to end the massive killings and treatment of the occupied uh, Palestinian territory. We hear from Naomi Jaffe of Troy Black Lives Matter and Jewish Voice for Peace, Peter Lavinia of the Green Party, Shahinda Nassan, who had 16 relatives recently killed in Gaza, and Renee Harrington of Jewish Voice for Peace. I'm Naomi Jaffe, and I'm here as part of Jewish Voice for Peace, as part of Troy for Black Lives, as part of the Jails Justice Network, to make connections. Settler colonialism and genocide 
in Palestine, we're here in horror and grief. And we're also here to make the connections between settler colonialism everywhere, the settler colonialism on which this country is founded, the, the continuing oppression of black and other people of color in this country, and US aggression all around the world in support of settler colonialism, as they are in support of the genocide that Israel is committing against Palestine at this moment. Now, this unfortunately has been going on for a very, very long time, 75 years since it was settled. What perhaps gives you some optimism that this time can be different? Because people are coming out all over the world. People are more visible in support of Palestine than all around the world than they have been for many years um, protesting against U.S. intervention and other colonial settler enterprises. Settler colonialism, as sponsored by white Western countries, is under pressure, under attack everywhere. West Africa is an example. While there certainly has been a you know upsurge of support for Palestine from a lot of uh, average Americans, we've not seen that change as much among elected officials and certainly not among the mainstream media. How does one get our elected officials to change their positions? Only through a huge amount of public pressure. Only through making it impossible for Israel to continue doing what it's doing and the United States to continue supporting it. The naked fascism of the statements of our public officials in support of outright murder and genocide, total humanitarian crisis, total violations of international law, blatantly, unashamedly supported by our elected officials, shows us that it's not, it, it's not their better natures that we're going to a, a, appeal to. As in Vietnam, a lot of people, a lot of powerful people, only came around after it became clear that the, that the United States was losing. So we have to be strong enough. We are talking about solidarity across the world. Uh, Peter Lavinia. I'm the co-chair of the Green Party of New York, and I'm here to support uh, ceasefire in Gaza and freedom for Palestine. And, you know, what uh, should the uh, Congress and the president be doing at this point? And, you know, you know, why does the Green Party think that uh, what the United States is doing is wrong? Um, well, the Green Party has long stood for freedom for Palestine and an end to the apartheid state. Uh, where the Gazans and uh, the Palestinians are, are kept in ghettos, which is essentially what's happening in the West Bank and Gaza. And right now, um, the two million people in Gaza who are being bombed uh, and, and killed by the merciless Israeli war machine um, were opposed to that. And President Biden could stop this right now if he wanted to. The U.S. is the primary backer of military aid to Israel. Um, so we call on President Biden and the Congress to uh, immediately push for a ceasefire uh, in Gaza and for a peaceful solution to this. This is uh, an incredible crisis in terms of, of what we're seeing in Palestine. I mean, there are two million people uh, that are at risk for starvation, water cut off, food cut off, uh, fuel cut off, hospitals bombed. Um, this is par for the course for American imperialism, though. I mean, if you go back uh, decades, uh, you look at what they uh, have supported in places like Guatemala with uh, over 200,000 people killed by the regime that we back, or one, one million people killed by uh, the Indonesian regime in the 60s. Um, you know, this is something that we do, unfortunately, with our client states is allow for them to kill, murder, and do whatever they want as long as, as they're supporting U.S. interests. Uh, and right now, that seems what the U, uh, like what the U.S. Is, is allowing to happen in Palestine. Next is Shahinda Nasan from Gaza. My family is from the heart of Gaza City. On early Saturday morning, on October 21st, 16, 
of my family members were martyred, who many of them were children, my cousins, my grandmother, my uncles, my aunts. May God have mercy on their soul. I am here today to speak out on the current genocide going on in Gaza. Many Gazans are currently living in horror, not knowing they will be able to live the next day without being bombed by an airstrike. Many Gazans no longer have access to water, food, electricity, and fuel, and recently, internet. Many Gazans each day witness the genocide happening right in front of their own eyes with our massacres left and right, buildings destroyed, bakeries being targeted, orphaned children crying to their martyred family members, the smell of blood and musk in the air from the dead martyrs of Gaza and villages to now a graveyard of rubble, blood, martyrs. Panicking journalists on the ground recording what they see. Paramedics and doctors stressing to help the patients due to the lack of health supplies. Broken families as well many family bloodlines who are now wiped out. I hope one day we'll be able to see a free Palestine. I hope our Palestinians will be able to return to our own homes. Palestine is filled with many historic, holy historic sites, exquisite sunsets, and lively cities and villages filled with heartwarming and sweet people who would offer you homemade knaf in the basia, especially when it's freshly out of the oven, when it's melting white stretchy nebusia cheese. Israel should be held accountable for its war crimes and genocide is currently being committed right now at, and at the current moment in Gaza and the West Bank. The, the city of Gaza has always lived in me ever since I was born. It will continue to stay with me to the end of my time. Palestine will be free until it's backward one day. This is Renee Harrington of Jewish Voice for Peace. I am here because in 1939, my mother and her parents, who were Jewish, were lucky enough to leave their home in Paris and secure safe passage to this country months before the Nazis occupied France. They did not want to leave their home but were compelled to by the anticipated Nazi invasion and occupation. I grew up hearing my mother tell this story. Millions in Europe were not as lucky. Had my family left in, had my family left in 1939 when they did, they would most likely have been slaughtered in the Nazi genocide. I'm speaking because today, millions of Palestinians have no opportunity to secure safe passage or indeed to secure any type of safety to protect themselves from the genocidal actions of the Israeli government. Hamas's murder and kidnapping of Israeli citizens was heinous. We mourn for the Israelis killed and hope for a speedy release of all the hostages. But that does not justify Israel's response. Israel announced their intention and has carried out cutting off electricity, water, food, fuel. The defense minister said, we are fighting human animals and we will act accordingly. Oh. Last three weeks, Israel has bombed Gaza, killing thousands of Palestinian civilians, bombed, flattening entire neighborhoods, leaving the people of Gaza without basic human needs, hospitals with no supplies or electricity to help the sick and injured, bombed the safe zones and escape routes that they themselves designated when they urged Palestinians to evacuate, <coughs> bombed as trucks carrying the not nearly enough humanitarian aid attempted to get through. 
Several days ago, they began their full ground offense. offensive. The devastation and horror experienced by the people of Gaza is unimaginable. And I am here today because my country, the same country that my mother and grandparents so gratefully adopted as their own, is funding this genocide. Push Voice for Peace was founded as an alternative to the mainstream Jewish organizations in this country that believe any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. We reject this view. Size Israel for the years of injustice they have inflicted upon the Palestinian people for their war crimes, for the genocide they are committing. It is our Jewish values, our heritage, that demand us to do so. To care for others and to stand up for those who are oppressed is the core of being Jewish. Every life is precious. War crimes and horrific acts do not justify more war crimes and horrific acts. Never again means never again for anyone. This has been Mark Dunley for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So I have to say it's been pretty heart-wrenching listening to um, various speeches at these rallies uh, as people talked about loved ones have been killed and um, mothers hold uh, their own infants in their arms and uh, talk what it means to think about other parents with their children. Um, this was a shorter version, a longer version is at mediasanctuary.org. Uh, you can also listen to a lot of our coverage about what's going on in, on Israel and Gaza on Democracy Now!, which usually we play right before or after um, Hudson Mohawk uh, magazine. And for those of you just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunley. I am Kalen McPherson. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk magazine on the Hudson Mohawk radio network on WOOC LP 105.3 FM Troy. W-O-O-G-L-P 92.7 FM Troy. W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady. W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany. And streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, neighbor, coworker, or that special somebody you see at the bus stop. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Moving on to our third segment, as part of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine continuing election coverage 2023, Andrea Cunliffe produces this segment with Troy City Council candidate Carol Haven, Thomas J. Casey running for District 6, and Aaron J. Vera. Darcy Cunningham Casey for District 4, taped at the Italian Community Center in Troy, New York, on the 18th of October. On October 18th at the Italian Community Center in South Troy, the candidates for City Council Districts 4 and 6 were invited to an introduction to the community and to a debate on central issues. We hear first from Marissa Jacques, anchor with Spectrum News 
who coordinated the Q&A. We want to start by talking about the waterfront in South Troy. How would you use your place now in your platform to help build and advance the waterfront, not only for public use, but for potentially commercial use as well. What does that look like? A lot of people go down to downtown Troy and you see some empty lots there that a lot of people have ideas about. Um, most of us don't really have a voice to be able to say what we really want there. That's where you all come in. So what does that waterfront look like? What do you do over your term to help advance it? Aaron Vega, Democrat from District 4, was first asked this question. Uh, well. Well, I think there's a there's a couple of things that I'd like to see um, happen with the uh, waterfront parcels. Um, the first would be some form of trail system that would run to the southern border of Troy um, to improve public access to the waterfront. Um, our new zoning code makes some provisions to, to enable that to happen. Um, I the, some of those parcels are controlled by you know various entities, um, so I believe that we would need to work with the LDC to find um, partners that want to work on developing that. Um, I think our waterfront is incredibly valuable. I would hope to see some housing uh, going along there. Um, a lot of those areas also have an industrial history to them. So um, we do have some environmental concerns uh, about, about developing some of those sites. And if you know, some of those sites aren't, um, aren't good candidates for, for this type of development, um, and perhaps we could use them for some type of recreation, soccer field or something like that that uh, doesn't involve disturbing, uh, disturbing the soils. Addressing the issue of waterfront development in Troy, we heard from Aaron Vega, Democrat District 4. Next up was Darcy Cunningham, Republican District 4. Um, working under Senator Larkin, I saw the revitalization of the Newburgh waterfront come through. Um, I believe that Troy has definitely strong potential as well in developing the waterfront um, for businesses um, to utilize for, like Aaron said, trails and for all, all residents to take advantage of this. Also, in addition to, I believe, the waterway, you know, industrial, um, shipping, whatnot, but in the meantime as well, being environmentally smart in, in the meantime. I did, you know, like I said, I saw Newburgh, their waterfront in Newburgh. It was pretty scary at one point, but I saw the revitalization and I believe that Troy has the potential as well. Thank you. Following Darcy Cunningham's reply is Tom Casey, District 6 Republican. Okay, well, you know, Troy has seven miles of waterfront, and it was always the big thing, the waterfront Troy. And some people have said, say, we're talking about the empty lots in South Troy, it's all brownfield. Somebody not too long ago said to me, well, you can't really do anything that, it's too contaminated. Well, I'm sorry, I kind of remember Starbuck Island, they had oil tanks on it. Somehow, they have some beautiful things over there. You know, I really, in my mind, I, I uh, I, I'm a Troy history buff. I remember the river boats and everything. It's just a big thing for me. I see the development housing along the river. You see that Cahoes, Starbuck Island. You know, some people even talked about a marina. I'm like, oh, I whether it would happen or not, I would love to see that. I, I just think that people sitting along the river, you know, looking out their, their deck, you know, maybe reading the newspaper, having coffee, watching the boats, 
or having a restaurant on the river is, is really big. I, I really would jump on any kind of project and love to move it ahead that we'd see things like that in the future. Responding to the question of Waterfront Troy was Tom Casey, District 6 Republican, then followed Carol Harbin, District 6 Democrat. What I would like to see would definitely be more development. Look at the beautiful apartments we have going from Waterloo to Green Island. More development. Troy is a beautiful city to live in. I've been here, I've been born and raised in the city of Troy. I would like to see more development. Or if not that, bring in the business in Troy. Have people come in, bring in the vendors, and use the property that we have that we're not utilizing so we can keep Troy active and keep it moving. Concluding the topic of waterfront development in Troy was Carol Harbin, Democrat, District 6. Introducing the next question was Marissa Jack, statewide anchor in Spectrum News, coordinating the Q&A of this event. You all talked about revitalization and building up some of those those lands where we have the ability to do so. And that's going to lead me to my next question. A lot of the folks out here have kids or grandkids who are in Troy, who live in the area. How do you plan to help develop some of the green spaces, the playgrounds, the recreational services for our younger generation? How is that going to be funded? How do you do it? And what would a timeline be on that? We first hear from Carol Harbin, Democrat District 6. Some of the fundraisers can be from grants for the city of Troy. Troy has money. It's up to us to go and request the funds that Troy has. Troy is not lacking funds. They're just holding the funds, and they feel they can use it for what their, what their priorities are. But Troy has money. There's grant monies out there. And we need more activities for the children. We have one in South Troy. That part is doing its best. But then we have vandalism. This lady I met last week, she bought books and put them in a bin for children to read. And someone went and lit the bin on fire and burned the books. No one mentioned it. No one addressed it. It wasn't even put in the paper. But we need to keep up what's going on in Troy. There's grant money to keep the lawn beautiful so kids have more rides. Even develop another area for Troy for the kids. If the kids do not have activities and they're bored, what do they do? They commit crimes because they have nothing else to do. And we want to keep the kids active in the city of Troy. And this is what I would plan to do. This is one of many other issues I will address. Discussing the revitalization of the city of Troy was Carol Harbin, a Democrat from District 6, and is now followed by Tom Casey, a Republican from District 6. Well, I think we all see the money that's being expended right now. They're redoing all these parks in the city, and, and, and that's just great. And down on uh, Jackson and, and Second, there's a park there that, that it, people in the community are taking care of, and that's just great. I'd love to see more of that. And we were just talking about the riverfront development. I hate to talk about you know Manhattan, but if you see along the, the water, they do have... You know, a bike path. We're not Manhattan, but you know, the, they have a bike path along uh, the west side, and 
you see parks along the way. So there's definitely in this redevelopment of the riverfront of Troy that we previously spoke about, there should be park land and everywhere. And I can't wait to see all the parks that are uh, being redone. I also want to address the pool situation. Now we still, you know, we have one pool. We used to have two, well, three, really. I think we got to do something, see if there is funds available to reopen the pool in the borough. And we also we used to have two skating rinks, and now, then we had one, and that one is shut down. You know, I used to go there. That's where I learned how to skate, you know, and that's closed down. So we really have to work on the infrastructure and find the funds and find, get the commitment to uh, get us back on track with some of these parks. On the revitalization of Troy, just speaking with Tom Casey, Republican District 6, now following Darcy Cunningham, Republican District 4. Regarding the parks in Troy, um, I'm all for, you know, the kids getting out and utilizing all the areas and whatnot. My concern is that every space that we have, it seems like it's, gonna, it's housing that is being built in that vicinity or is going to be built. The property that I would concentrate on in my district would be Prospect Park. I don't believe we utilize it to its full potential and it definitely, we could definitely benefit from that. Um, as for the kids, absolutely, I would encourage them. I would love to see them go to the parks. My main concern is the safety of our children attending the parks. And with that being said, um, that's all I have to say. That was Darcy Cunningham Casey, Republican from District 4. Next up is Aaron Vega, Democrat, District 4. Um, I, I think that the city needs to um, continue the investment in the parks. We've, we're in the process right now, uh, the city's in the process right now, of spending $3 million that have been set aside for park improvements. And it's great to see that, that kind of stuff happening. Um, but, I, but I think we've, we've really let a lot of our parks slide. Um, and we haven't been keeping up with just routine maintenance. Um, and I think a lot of that stems from the budgets that we're, we're creating in the city. Um, we're just not setting aside the appropriate amount of money um, or the appropriate amount of staff to maintain the things that we have. Um, my wife and I were, were walking, um, this isn't South Troy, but we were walking through Fair Park the other day and we came uh, across a, what, what I imagine used to be a baseball diamond. And you know, the, we have the, the rusty fence that's still up there and you know, it's in disrepair. Um, and I know that there are parks in South Troy that are in a similar state. Um, we, we need to set these money. Grant, grant funding is fantastic when it's available and we should proactively seek those funds. But as a city, we need to decide if parks are something that we want to set money aside for annually. And if that's the case, um, you know, I think we can do some really great things. We just heard from Aaron Vega, Democrat for District 4. I'm Andrea Cunliffe, reporting for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And we did hear from Carol Harvin and Thomas Casey, running for District 6 in the City of Troy City Council, and Aaron Vera and Darcy Cunningham Casey for District 4, uh, provided by Andrea Cunliffe. And if you want to find out all our various interviews for our Election Day coverage, go to mediacentury.org and about halfway down on the homepage, you'll find a link.
And on Friday, on this Friday, November 17th, from 8 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. in Albany, there'll be an R&B Upcut event where there'll be live music from local artists, food and drink, dancing, and much more. We are joined by Tazi, one of the artists performing in the event, and it also looks like we, she is a friend of hers. So hello, Tazi. Hi, how you doing? Good. How are you? I'm Divine, and this is DJ Cuts. He's actually my friend who helped me put the event together. So can you tell us a little bit about this event? So it's R&B Uncut. Um, it's basically a different spin on a showcase. Uh, we chose a handful of artists who we know are very big in the R&B community. And basically, they have a, you know like 30 minutes to 45 minutes to explain you know their songs, how it came about, the meaning behind them. Just to you know, give the audience and the people, the fans, um, something personal to go off of. Uh, yes. Very intimate evening we got planned for everyone. It's going to be a full production, lights, staging, food. good quality sound. As my friend said, food, drinks for people to come and enjoy. Um, if anyone would like to attend, you could find us at Eventbrite under R and B Uncut, and give us a follow reach out message we have a couple deals too by the way just so you know you know get the entrance food and drinks all included so for date night for parents who want to get away from the kids for the evening yeah can you um remind me about the location of for the event on friday november 17th and who are some of the other performers that will be participating so the event will take place at 51 Waterville Ave in Albany, New York, at a new venue called Likeable Pop-Ups. It is a, Likeable Pop-Ups is a, a, an event space. It's a small, intimate event space for, you can rent it hourly or in four-hour blocks or whole-day block. Uh, some of the other artists that will be performing, we have Gian, Boyd, Celia, Atoka, Quadi uh, oh, nice. Rouse. All these all these artists have performed in Albany. If you're from the Albany and the local scene, you've probably seen them perform at Paulie's or at the Fuse Box. Yeah. Um, I myself have had these guys perform at events that I've hosted myself. They're all quality acts. And I feel like if people can go out and spend $50, $60 to go see a concert with minimal production, why not come hang out with us for an evening and see, see what some local people can do? What is the hope? What do you want to get out of this event? Uh, me personally, I think I, I put this together because I was going to showcases and a lot of the times at the showcases, there's just other artists in the crowd. There aren't real people there, not real people in the sense of real humans, but just like real people spectating. They're not like the artists are there to perform and their like opinion is very biased. So our our hopes is to get people who aren't musicians that just like good quality music. They like good quality acts to come out and watch these guys perform. For me, all I really want from it is just to showcase myself and my friends, of course, because I'm a very big supporter of Celia, Quadi, Gian, Boyd. They all be doing their big one. I myself, I am an R&B singer. I am also a rapper. So I would like to show my followers from Instagram and Spotify and everything, that different side of me, you know, they want to get to know my bubbly personality and I want to show it to them. Also, Tazi uh, just recently went viral on, what was it, TikTok? 
TikTok, World Star um, posted me and New Yorkers. So I'm right now at 6.2 million views. I'm at 29.6 thousand followers on Instagram. I'm at 1,200 uh, daily listeners on Spotify, which is a big jump. So yes, we're constantly growing. Yeah, so the goal is ultimately to, to continue to push her forward and to push everyone else associated with this event forward as well. So, so my son who grew up in this area was you know, sort of active in the uh, punk rock movement. But I had to move down to Williamsburg to really get connected. Yeah. How is uh, the Capital District in terms of, uh, you know, supporting, you know, R&B and, and the type of music you guys are promoting? So from my personal experience, I feel like the Capital District likes more upbeat music. They like R&B music, but there's not really many showcases or any event venues which really, you know, cater to the R&B crowd. So they could support it, like if they know you. Um, but it's gonna, I think it's gonna take, you know, an event like this and a couple more to really get upstate New York to really get back into the R&B vibe instead of the dancing one. Yeah, I agree. Cause most of the showcases that take place are geared towards- Drill music. Uh, drill music, rap artists. So, you know, I felt like this is a good event to have. It's very calm. It's even family friendly, really. If, you know, if people wanna bring their friends, bring their family, you can bring kids. It's, it's going to be a very calm environment, and it's just a good thing to have. I think the Capital District is slowly but surely catching on to the R&B wave, and as Tazi said, you know, with consistency, I think we'll be able to, to have a real true following here in the Capital District. Yes. So, so for people my age, what is that really special food that's going to be available at this event? I'm sorry, could you repeat that, sir? The food? Yeah, the food. The food. Oh, food. So, food. Ah, so we have Keys Good Eats and Sweet Treats catering. She has a lovely menu prepared. It will be jerk chicken, fried chicken, fried, chicken, uh, fried fish, grilled salmon. Mac and cheese. Uh, for the sides, we're going to have mac and cheese, collard greens, candied yams, cornbread, uh, drinks, alcoholic and non-alcoholic available to the public. It's going to be like an early Thanksgiving dinner. Right. We call it. Already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if anybody would like to attend, they can um, go to Eventbrite and, and just search R&B Uncut. Our event will be the first one to pop up, and they can RSVP to attend the event. Um, you can find me on Instagram at The Real Cuts. Tazi? You can find me on Instagram at Otazi, O-H-T-A-Z-I-I. -I. I'm on all music platforms, Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, etc. under T-A-Z-I Artist, Tazi Artist. And I have a single releasing on my birthday, which is November 17th. So stay tuned, guys. Same day as the event. Yes. Uh, November 17th, 51 Waterville Avenue from 8 p.m. to 12 p.m. Again, if you guys would like to come, you can RSVP on Eventbrite and just search R&B Uncut. Yes, thank you guys so much for having me. For real. Thank you. Thank you yes, thank you for so much for joining us. Of course. Have a beautiful night. Carson Cowan, a Skidmore College student, produced this segment exploring the challenges faced by adjunct faculty in the upstate New York. She talks with Skidmore philosophy professor Peter Murray. Hi, my name is Carson Cowan, investigating what it means to be an adjunct professor in upstate New York. Today, we have a very special guest, Peter Murray, a full-time teaching professor at Skidmore College, 
who is helping to shape the future and redefine the role of adjunct professors on Skidmore's campus. Professor Peter Murray has the insights, wisdom, and expertise to share as we explore the evolving role of adjunct professors in upstate New York. To begin our interview, I asked Professor Murray to explain what it took to start the first union for adjunct and contingent faculty on Skidmore's campus. We spent basically four years making the case to our colleagues that the sort of practices that the administration had been um, pursuing weren't going to stop by asking the administration to stop doing them. And so that we actually needed to form a union and get the legal right to change these things. So the one that I have in mind, there's a number of them, but the one that I have in mind in particular is a practice that at Skidmore, they call the serial terminal contract. So a bit of terminology. At Skidmore, they use adjunct, the term adjunct just for um, part-time faculty, and then they call non-tenure track faculty who are full-time, uh, but also teaching without the possibility of tenure. So I'm in the latter category. So I, I'm a full-time non-tenure track professor within philosophy, and I've been here from like since 2015. But um, once I started to get to know the place, one thing I learned was that some of my colleagues had been here for like 25 years without tenure, just being hired from year to year to year. And sometimes finding out in May that they didn't necessarily have a job in September. So long, long story there, but I don't know if the unionization aspect of things is uh, what you're particularly interested in or, or, or what. What's your, what's your kind of particular interest in, in, these, in the topic or the subject of adjunct faculty? It really just stems from the treatment and what campuses are doing with their, well, with their money, essentially. Yep. So at SUNY Albany, for instance, our tuition is getting higher. Just all the money that the campus is generating and bringing in isn't necessarily going towards faculty. So I'm exploring more so where is it going to, why adjunct professors aren't getting the treatment that they deserve or the benefits or pay that they deserve. Yeah. and what that entails due to students. Yeah, and so uh, I mean, wages are, are one of the central um, concerns that we've got, and I think adjunct faculty everywhere um, have. Um, <clears throat> at Skidmore, things are actually a little better than at some other places. I don't know what the situation is exactly at uh, UAlbany, but a common um, situation for part-time faculty is they get paid per credit hour or per unit or whatever it happens to be at the particular institution. And it can be as low as like, you know, $1,200, $2,500, something like that. And if you think about six uh, semesters, what, 15 weeks or approximately something like that. So that means uh, if you get, if you're teaching a four credit class <laughs> for, for 15 weeks, in the end, you make like uh, maybe six, $7,000. And for a lot of people that live in the upstate area, that's just not enough to really survive on or as little as like $4,000 that's before taxes. So the issue of, of where the money goes, I mean, I think those sort of just questions are best directed to the administration. Like they usually say that the majority of their money goes on salaries, but whose salaries is a different question. Um, so that's often a question that's best answered by the administration as opposed to the adjunct faculty. More specific information about exactly where the money is uh, going and how much of it is going to salaries, I think you can actually get that um, information um, directly from the state. 
I'm curious, what motivated you to pursue this career path? So I was, this is actually my third um, career. So I was as an undergrad uh, Russian Soviet studies major and I lived and worked in Russia uh, from 1990 to 1995. And then I came back, um, couldn't find a job doing Russia related stuff at the time. Uh, so I ended up uh, temping at a big public accounting firm called PricewaterhouseCoopers and uh, eventually got hired there and was hired basically to work as a glorified editor and made tons of money. Uh, so I kind of peaked early in my, my salary over the course of my life, but it was just kind of uh, soul sucking. Um, so I didn't enjoy making a bunch of, of money for corporations. To answer your question, it was really this um, experience that I had earlier in my life and kind of like a, a general question about the relationship between thought and language that got me into philosophy and then teaching. One of the reasons I've stuck with it in particular is, um, I don't know, it's a little hard to describe. I mean, uh, it feels like one of the few kind of deeply worthwhile things you can do. So people are trying to figure out the world and to be able to actually have at least some role in helping them feel like they understand the world better um, that is satisfying, at least to, to my soul, in a way that making a ton of money never was. So even though I make a lot less money than uh, uh, I did in the past, um, I actually feel much better about the, the work that I do. I began to ask Peter Murray more about his experience teaching at universities in California when he first started out. Then we began to focus on my experiences with adjunct professors as a college student. Do you know, do students in general know who their adjunct professors are and who their tenure track professors are? Like, do they even know what the difference is? For the most part, no. The only reason I decided to like explore this topic was because I started to feel as if some of my professors weren't teaching me the way that I imagined. Yeah. So I started exploring like what kind of training goes into becoming a professor. And then that's where I stumbled upon um, professionals who come into the teaching field versus tenured professors who are trained into teaching. And once I figured out that there's like this sort of division, I wanted to raise the issue or just give it, give it some sort of voice. So were the professors that were teaching you that you felt weren't teaching you in the way that you expected to be taught, were they the adjunct professors or the tenured professors? They were the adjunct. Like what sort of things did they do that you um, weren't expecting they would do? It was never to the point of unavailability, just it just felt like a lack of preparedness or there was just some sort of rush. And so did you find... Um, I mean, it sounds, I, I, I suspect, tell me if I'm wrong, maybe you did the, the research to figure this out. It sounds like I bet those people were teaching at a bunch of institutions uh, all at the same time, and they were rushing from institution to institution to teach a class here and a class there. Is that what you found was happening? It was either I found that they were teaching at multiple schools or that they also had other jobs outside yep. of um, yep. this um, position. So when the, when the tenured professors are able to teach from your perspective better or be able to give more time, that's because, well, one, it's their only job. Uh, and two, they've been doing it for a long time. 
So this isn't to say that anyone's not in fact a good teacher, but it, it's just not a part of the job that you get any training in how to teach. It's actually, people are starting to worry, <laughs> worry about this and actually start to try to make pedagogical instruction part of graduate programs. But by and large, it's just not. I, I don't know if you've had time yet to kind of look into historically how um, the proportions have changed, but in say like the 1970s, institutions of higher education had about 70% tenured faculty and only 30% non-tenured. So, and the only reason they would ever use non-tenured faculty was they have, you know, this thing sabbatical where you can go off and take some time off your teaching and actually do some research. And so you would bring in a person to replace you in the department just while you're gone doing your research. But that 70% number is in fact flip-flopped now. Um, at most schools, it's 70%, well, nationally at least, it's about 70% um, uh, adjunct faculty and only 30% tenure-like faculty, uh, in part because it's much cheaper to pay uh, people part-time than it is to pay a tenured professor that not only usually commands a higher salary, but also um, you can't fire unless they do something egregiously wrong. Do you think it's because of like a corporate hierarchy that's being enforced into the academic settings? Like this sense of capitalism and trying to churn out more profit than investment? Yes, this is directly a result of capitalism. Education is, a, is an extremely lucrative business. Uh, professors are relatively cheap and uh, education, people are willing to pay an enormous amount. What would you say the most pressing issues that are facing adjunct professors in upstate New York? They need a higher per credit rate. They need a, basically a living wage. So we need to find out how much it costs to live in a particular area. And the minimum per credit hour rate, that at least needs to be indexed to the minimum cost of living in that area. You shouldn't have to be living in your car to teach. You need to be hired earlier and their employment needs to be secure year over year. So once you put in a certain number of years as a part-time employee, I think you should be converted to a full-time employee. So pressing issues, salary, precarity of employment, and also some um, voice on uh, campus, meaning um, somebody who represents your interests and can speak up for those interests um, in the campus community. And that's actually why we started our union was exactly those three issues. I would like to extend gratitude to Professor Murray for joining in this conversation about the ever-evolving role of adjunct professors in upstate New York. This is Carson Cowan for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I will just note that I've been an adjunct professor a number of times, including at RPI 30 years ago. And it's clear our main purpose is to be economically exploited. And that's our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Kellen McPherson. And I'm Mark Dunley. Our engineer tonight, Joan Eason. We want to thank Joan and all our volunteers who made today's episode possible, including Andrea Cunliffe, Carson Cowan, Kaylin McPherson, and myself. We want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email to Hudson Mohawk HMM at HMM at MediaSanctuary.org. We appreciate you listening. Thank you for supporting Grassroots Radio. And until next time. Thank you.